Hi guys, welcome back to You Chat Too Much podcast. Um, this is our newest topic where we're going to delve into some, what I would say some really important topics and probably um, continuing to build on uh, what we spoke about last week. Um, we've got our very first guest today and Majid will introduce them in a second. But first, let's have a little summary of the week. Maj, how's it going? Uh, after having a couple of weeks of just mourning on the podcast, um, things are starting to look up. I had my second jab on Saturday, uh, so that means I'm now double jabbed and I can go around licking people in the face and that. But, um, yeah, things are starting to look up. They, 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 we came out of that strict lockdown, uh, so now we're allowed to go out and exercise. And there's talks of... Um, making separate rules for those who are vaccinated, like opening up the restaurants and the malls. Apparently that should happen in the next week or so. I don't know what exactly they're going to allow us to do, but then that's an incentive for those who have not registered. And then the other thing is that they they had a plan of getting herd immunity or getting everyone vaccinated by December. They moved that forward to October, which potentially means that there could be a small holiday ready for October or um definitely in December if if they if it goes as plans because they're now after a slow start they're rocking the vaccinations now um, uh, and we had Eid this week which is strange uh, but we, we worked it out uh, usually we spend it with with friends uh, and family nearby obviously we couldn't do that but we had our friends around who, who live in the same condo so we managed to get some sort of social event going on how about you mate um yeah we've we've had freedom day this week so uh there's like a bit of a mixed emotion of like elation from a lot of people you know a lot of people that are feeling really happy that things are open and you can do everything that you want and there are very very few restrictions but I think there's still a lot of like you know um uneasiness about things you know unlike what you said you know you double jabbed you can still pass it you can still contract covid and you can still get pinged from the nhs app and there are tons and tons of kids i mean this week there was a million kids off school um missing out on school across the uk and that's been fairly consistent you know throughout the whole year so yeah it's a bit of like a up and down and hopefully it will um you know once people are vaccinated more people are cases will continue to go down but apart from that i mean yeah, everything's going a lot better. I've got a lot of friends who have started having babies now. So I've been uh, marking my uh, trips around going and, and seeing the babies. That's, uh, that's kind of been my last few weeks. Have you been making babies cry like you do with mine? <coughs> I've actually had. Um, it's actually only yours so far that seems to cry when they see my face. I've trained a lot. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a little bit concerned about it because I've made that comment to a few people when I've when I've met their baby and they've been fairly good with me despite them all pretty much being COVID babies. Mm. You know, and I feel like I thought I had a good relationship with your little daughter. I met I met her a lot of times, but yeah, still she just sees me and starts crying. So. <laughs> All right, shall we introduce our first guest, first ever guest on our podcast, uh, honour and privilege, uh, our, one of our friends, um, 
who is Eben, and I know Eben from playing on the same football team as him in, in my previous stint in Malaysia. And then now we are friendly rivals on the pitch. Not so much with Jojo, always hacks him down when he, ta when he takes him on. Uh, welcome, <laughs> Eben. How are you Good doing? Good evening. Thank you. Madge, that's the, uh, the best description of Joe on the football pitch I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I keep telling him, I keep telling him he's a different person when he crosses that line, but he's like, he's having none of it. And he's got lots of money to spend on fines from referees, I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but you want to introduce yourself? Tell us uh, yeah. where you're from, what, you do, what you're doing, where you are right now. Yeah, so my name's Eben. I'm a teacher. Uh, from, originally from England. I lived in Luton, born in London, but so always been from the sort of southeast area there. I've lived in Malaysia now for eight years, really enjoyed it. It's my first teaching job abroad and, you know, listening to your first podcast, my experiences out here and my sort of reasons for staying out here for as long as I have really reflect a lot of what the both of you were saying during that, that discussion that you had. Okay, cool. So today our our topic is a quite a sensitive topic, but as you've kind of noticed, um, we do want to talk about these conversations that we should be happening. And Joe and I are quite comfortable with each other to to be talking about this. And gladly, Eben has come on um, as a black British guy who can hopefully offer a different perspective uh, to Joe and I. So we're going to talk about racism today. Uh, but before we get into the topic, I just kind of wanted to ask Joe. Um, for, for Joe, is a obviously a white guy, but obviously his role in this conversation is slightly different to what mine and Eben is. So, Joe, you want to explain what you're hoping to get out of the conversation? Yeah, sure. I think um, I think for me, and we'll talk a little bit more later about you know experiencing our you know all of our different experiences with it. But I think for me, it's just you know, what, what is my role in it? How can I, how can I be the best possible role model to like friends, family, you know, future kids, kids that I teach in school, um, you know, how to ask the right questions. You know, I mean, we've been watching quite a few things, Madge, me and you, and uh, what, listening to a few podcasts and the, the questions people ask are, are really important and how you do it. Um, and also just how to, how to continue to build those kind of like strong relationships. Um, and I think the difference between that, this idea of like, you know, we're going to talk about race in general, but then race and, and what it means to be racist and what it means to be like an anti-racist um, and, and knowing the difference between the two. So, so yeah, that's, that's me. I remember when you, when you, when the Black Lives Matter movement was happening, um, one day you came into school and you just asked me a question that's proper threw me off. And I think that's where we, where we, where we got into our conversations and also how we start the podcast. You asked yeah. me, you asked me, I think you're the only person trying to reflect on if anyone else has asked me, but you asked me if I've ever experienced racism. And when you asked me, I was so shocked at the fact that it just felt like a weird question someone asked me. And then, and then it also felt weird. The fact that like you asked me like, as if there was no chance of me experiencing racism. And I was like, in my head, I was like, of course I've experienced racism. And then yeah. as I was telling you, you like your facial expressions that like, showed obviously shock and remorse. Um, 
but also then it made me realize that why have I not shared this with anyone and I do have a responsibility for sharing it with other people just even if it has that response that it's had with you and that's what's yeah. hopefully going to come out of this conversation um Eben do you want to start with just giving us a background with like where you're from like the demographics um just go away with how you how you want to go with like in terms of racism experience of racism with you um yeah yeah Sure. So I guess I'll start with my my ethnic background, um, for want of a better expression. There. So I'm originally Afro-Caribbean. So my I'm second, third generation uh, Black British. My parents, my mother was born in England. My father was born in Jamaica. He moved here when he was three with his with the rest of his siblings. So his father moved over initially. So he. His, grand, his father was part of the Windrush generation, um, as was my mother's parents also. So he moved over slightly afterwards. My mother was born here. They've always lived in, again, so initially they lived in London, in northwest London, a place called Cricklewood, which at the time was quite heavily Afro-Caribbean. Um, now it's very different. It's a very, it's like many places in London, it's been quite gentrified. But um, my parents moved to Luton when I was about eight years old. So Luton was different to London in some respects, but still a relatively multicultural place. Luton's got a really interesting history of um, different racial groups populating it. Initially in the, I think the 70s and 80s, it was quite well known for being um, a heavily Irish area of the country and then in the 90s I guess there were more quite a few Asians moved into the area as well and black people have moved into the area also when I was growing up it was um, dependent on where you went it was it was majority white British white Irish and Asian so Pakistani Bangladeshi Indian to predominantly I Whenever we say Asian in England, we always think of those that part of Asia first, I guess, don't we? Um, more so than Chinese or Southeast Asian so much. And yeah, school was quite mixed. We had lots of different groups. And I think during my period, it, my, my adolescence there, I was quite fortunate, I think. We, we sort of grew up in a time where there was, there was still racism, of course, but it wasn't it never felt as significant as a lot of the things that happen now, I guess. And I had an interesting, I have two brothers and I had a conversation with them. They're um, five and eight years younger than me. They went to the same school that I did and having a conversation with them about the, their experiences growing up, it's very, very different to those that I had in just a five-year period. So lots, is, lots has changed there and lots continues to change there. I think recently there's been more of an influx of Eastern Europeans. So it's a continually changing, melting pot of cultures. Just wanted to, I've been to Luton once actually, um, and it reminded me of the area that I live in in Sheffield. Like I was talking about how mixed it was. That we, we don't have many... Um, Black people living in, in the area that I live in, it's mainly Asian, uh, Arabs, you know, and now now we've got Eastern Europeans mixed up in there as well. Um, and, but I remember going to Luton and it exactly reminded me of, of what it looked like 
in parts of Sheffield as well. You know, you talk about in, in your school in your school life and maybe in your young ad- adolescent life. What were you? What was your social group like? What was that made up of? Um, so predominantly white, actually. So in my year group at school, there were maybe four or five black boys in my year. And I think one of the things that's probably worth saying now, actually, is that um, when we talk about black during this conversation today, there's obviously different cultures within that. So when I speak about black boys, then that was Afro-Caribbean boys. Recently, um, there's been a lot of immigration from Africa as well. So their experiences are very different. Their outlook on things is going to be quite different to what mine is. But um, so initially it was, there was just a handful of Afro-Caribbean boys there. Um, I played football. So I, I tended to be around the football crowd, which was um, at that time, mainly black and white. But as we've got older, as I got older there, actually you could see a lot. It gave me a good opportunity to meet people from other communities as well. So I became better friends with people from Bangladeshi and Pakistani backgrounds through playing football in my late teens. And how about your social groups as you got older then, when you when you like went to college, university and, and obviously growing up after that? Yes, so they changed a little bit. I should say I went to church as well when I was younger. So church was more, was was very much Black Caribbean. So there was a big group of Black Caribbean friends there and the different roles that I play in those two places was quite interesting. And as I, my group changed a little bit. I've always had quite a few white friends because of the, again, playing sport, you tend to be, particularly football, um, the majority of people that are playing it tend to be white. And, um, I've kept a lot of my black friends, particularly from church as well. And then just pockets of other communities as well over the years. Now, as we're older, I think, um, although the friendship circles get bigger, they probably don't, they're not quite as close. So I've got two or three friends that I stay in quite close contact with. And again, there's a, there's a couple of black guys there. There's a couple of white guys as well. A couple of, um, a couple of women also. And how about your, um, is there any examples like of like blatant racist incidents as you were growing up that you were maybe affected by? Or was there any points in your life where you did actually feel that your race was having an impact on, on any part of your life? Yeah. So there's, there's one specific incident that I remember. And overall, I think I've been pretty fortunate. I don't really feel as though I've been particularly impacted by my race although it has had an impact on who I am as a person um so I can't remember how old I was but I remember during it was in high school and the boys in our class we were going through that period where we were all trying to work out who was who in the class and whatever and so there was lots of fallings out between different groups in the class and I remember getting a um a prank call one day, I think it was a Saturday or a Sunday, because I had lots of my family over. And it was, I could tell it was boys from my class. And there was just, yeah, I got called all of the racist names under the sun, basically. Happened the once. And um, 
yeah, I, I can still remember it today. I still remember how that felt today as well. It didn't, it's a bit strange. It didn't really, I never felt angry about it. Felt a bit ashamed by it for a little while. And it's just something that stuck with me. And I mean, after that, I pretty good friends with a lot of those boys now. So we never discussed it. I never brought it up with them. Perhaps I should have done, but yeah. Um, in our in our last episode, we talked. Sorry, Joe. In our last episode, we talked about um, culture and identity, and I, I I kind of led on the topic quite a bit about how I had to play through my Islamic culture, my British culture, my Pakistani culture, and how I struggle with my identity because I couldn't really fit into one particular culture, which is what society wanted me to do. Have you had any problems with that, or have you been okay from day one? No, I think I did. I because I, I, fa- I think I found when I was younger, it was much easier to fit in it, with my school friends and it was, say, my church friends because the, one of the, again, with, with race, along with race, other things come in. There are other factors, aren't there? So things like class and family background and things like that all play an impact on it. And I just found that, because of my background, I wasn't from Luton initially, and I'd had a pretty stable upbringing, not to say that everyone doesn't, of course, but just in terms of that particular group of friends, I'd had a stable upbringing. I'd been to a, um, before I'd moved to Luton, I'd been to a, a Saturday school for um, learning black history and black culture so I had a different perspective on things and I was probably a little bit better spoken than some of my peers at the time so it just made it much more difficult to fit in with that group of friends initially whereas I guess in school because everyone is a little different in school it made it much easier to just be to be like that in school. Joe you had a question? Yeah (coughs) just that well I mean two things one I love like um, I love your comment about um, you know how you say that your race hasn't impacted you but impacted you as a as as like your um, but as a person like I just think that as well as um, some of the things that you're saying here is it's really understandable that you know it's shaped you as a person but just going back to like your experience with that a racial incident you you one word that uh, you know, that you said when you said about feeling a little bit like ashamed. Um, did after that incident, did you like, how did that go down after that incident? Was it like one of those, I mean, we're all teachers. So was it one of those ones where you reported it, you spoke to your, you know, head of year or your form tutor? Did you like ask your mum or dad or did you, you know, speak to your brothers? Like, what should I do? Was there like, anger or was it like embarrassment you know what were some of those feelings if you don't mind sharing yeah I mean to be honest I didn't I didn't do anything with it I think embarrassment was the the main feeling that I felt at the time and I could I could I could pretty much hear every voice so I knew exactly who it was on that call Mm. but I never raised it with them and I guess part of that was perhaps because it felt like it was a group of boys. And actually I should say as well, it wasn't just white boys in there. There were, um, 
there's a, a Pakistani boy and an Indian boy in that group also. Mm. So it was very much felt like it was that group doing it. But again, I think at the time, whilst I did feel shame from it, I think it was as much shame as be, at being the one that was receiving just the call. Although obviously mm-hmm. the type of the words that they use, they're impactful. So um, it stuck more because of that. Um, yeah, I, we, we sort of left, left it there. I never really spoke about it afterwards. Did you, did you feel that then that your, um, I suppose your upbringing and then your, you know, your kind of extra education that you had put in, you'd put time into learning did you kind of just overlook it and go, I can understand that, like, you just don't know what you're talking about? You know, did you feel anything towards them and go, you're just not even worth my time? There wasn't anger towards it. It was just like, it's not worth it. It kind of, it's, I think because at the time, when you're teenagers, you're experimenting with those things. So racist language was things, although, it, again, I, I have to emphasise it wasn't really, it never felt like we were living in a really racialized time at the time, but there was lots of racist language being thrown around all of the time by kids, but there was never really anything beyond the use of that language to get a reaction from someone. So mm. again, because it was, it was specifically to do with race, it stuck in my mind because I'd never been called those names um, before. But um, I think it was, pretty easy to rationalize uh, pretty easy I guess now looking back in hindsight to sort of rationalize it and just say okay that was I know who did it for a start um yeah. you know a week later we're all friends again in the playgrounds there's no it wasn't I wasn't being bullied at the time it was part of a bigger period where we were all trying to work out what was going on in terms of you know teenage boys trying to be the, the top guy in the classroom as much as anything mm-hmm. else so I think all of those things put it into made it easy to compartmentalize it to an extent but it because of the language used and not having had that before it's stuck with me since you know I just I just want to reflect on on what Eben's been talking about is that and and, and I think this is important because we, we have a lot of biased views without, it's called unconscious bias. We don't really, we don't really, uh, we've got to be aware of it. That's what this conversation is about. And and I think, I, I, it's the first time I'm hearing Evan talk about this actually. Um, and I'm actually quite surprised that you don't have more stories, you know, and maybe this is something that we, 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 are, we perceive, you know, especially with the media, that black people or Asian people or the racism, there's all these stories that you hear. And it's, a, I just presumed and probably that's and, and I've learned from what you just said is that I just presumed a lot every nearly every black person went through all these racial incidents um, what you hear on the news and there's there's some terrible ones but I think you made I think you made a valid point about like when you when you spoke to your brothers and how their story is completely different and and there might be there might be factors in there that made you feel confident like you talked about you had a stable household and you had stable friendships um, and it was like the norm but I found I found that really interesting, and that's already changed changed my viewpoint um, about others as well. So I think, Mad, what you said there about expecting it to be the case for every um, black man—that's quite an interesting thing to say because 
you know, there's, there's there have been other incidents, nothing major. Like I've been stopped by police quite a, a couple of times when driving. Um, but I guess the fact that it hasn't happened that often to me has made it me more conscious or more um, wanting to be a voice for those that it does happen to. So if it was something that was happening to me regularly, then I don't think that I would need to, I wouldn't ever feel the need to perhaps read or research things in the same detail because that's my life experience there. Whereas when you see it happening to others that you care about or you, you recognise that it could have easily been you that it had happened to, then it means that you do take almost the not quite a survivor's guilt approach to things, but just you, if you have an observation on something, then you've got an obligation to do something about it. So not having experienced it myself makes me want to speak up more for those that do go through it. Yeah, interesting. Um, my experience is slightly different to yours then actually. Um, I, I, I kind of put mine into uh, two different phases, I would say. I've spoke about this before. My primary school Eben, was was full of Asian people. Um, I don't even think there were any black people in that school. And it was the odd white person. I think we had three, four, maybe five or six white people in that, but everyone else was Asian. So my perception of the world was what that school was. And my area is exactly the same. So I grew up thinking that's what England was. And uh, I also grew up, so I was never going to experience racism, apart from the odd joke that you make between racism, you know, mm. like you, you, you talk about before. It was when I went to secondary school. So as soon as I went to secondary school, my, my secondary school was uh, in a proper, uh, predominantly white area. It was a 45 minute drive, uh, a two bus journey. Um, and in my year group, school of about a thousand kids, 900 to a thousand kids, I reckon. In my year group, we were the first, there was three Asians in my class. There was two in the year above who were my friends. So there's six Asians, I think in the whole year, uh, school and probably about 10 to 15 black people. And the rest of it was all white, okay? And I remember that was secondary school, that my first year, year seven, was my toughest year in my whole life of dealing with racism. And that was like the massive culture shock. I didn't know what hit me in the face. People were like uh, saying things to me that I'd never heard before, uh, using terminology that I've never heard before. Um, and like they were trying to be offensive, but I wasn't offended by it until I understood what they were saying. And even, even during that year seven time, we were getting chased after school uh, a lot of the times. And I remember maybe two, three, four occasions, um, we got chased from the bottom gate to the top gate. We used to get the bus from the bottom gate. And we got chased like by about 200 kids or 100. It looked like 200 kids, maybe it was probably less. Um, and the chasers and, we, and the teachers had to lock us up in the, in the music rooms. Um, and they had to call my parents and our parents had to take us home and that happened that happened uh, three to four times in that year. And I also remember like during my time in that whole five years in that school, um, bus drivers never used to pick us up. So we, 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 could, we had two options. We could either get two buses uh, and the bus would drop us off into a, what's known as a racist area. Or we could take one bus, which came a little bit later, um, less of a journey, but the risk was the, the bus drivers won't pick us up. And that happened quite a few times, actually. So that, that was like the racism that I experienced at that time. I think after year seven, uh, the way I kind of processed it, my whole school experience was that, you know what, these guys haven't, haven't had exposure to people like me. 
Um, but after kind of year seven, it kind of calmed down. Like we never, I never really had any racial incidents in school. Uh, it was more all out, all outside of school. And then I remember, I think I was in year nine when 9-11 happened. Um, and then, and then it, it just kicked off again, but that was more to do with my religion. But obviously race, it was the ignorance of people at that time, it was everyone was getting branded as one. And I remember that that caused me a lot of problems. Um, and I, even even on the buses, um, I remember like grown men like spitting at us and even one hit my friend on the way out and we couldn't do anything, we were young kids. Bus driver just, just like kind of shrugged his shoulders, couldn't do anything. It, and that happened a couple of times. Um, and, I, and I remember once I actually once was threatened by a knife and, and a screwdriver by a group of boy, boys in that area that I'm talking about when you take the two buses. And that wasn't particularly, uh, the incident wasn't a racial incident, like the reason why that happened, it was a misunderstanding from their part. But I think the way they dealt with it and the way they wanted to threaten me was because of my race as well. So that all happened in secondary school. And then then that, that experience then had an effect on me personally in terms of my self-confidence and my self-worth. And I talked about that in a previous episode about my identity. Um, I, I then decided upon myself to take a, a distance away myself from trying to be Pakistani or being brown. And, and one of the ways I did that, and I didn't know at the time, was the lack of my speaking my language and trying to, trying to make myself feel more British the way I spoke, the way I dressed, the music I listened to, even though I listened to all of that, but maybe I emphasized it a bit more. And one of the regrets I have now is I don't speak the language my mom and dad speak. Uh, it would have been really useful, especially when, you, when you're out internationally, you, you, you see how, how important it is, especially with having kids that you kind of want to pass those things. But in my house, my mom and dad speak to me in Punjabi. I always reply back in English, and I wish they emphasized it. And I remember deep down, I didn't want to speak Punjabi because that, that put me more towards the Pakistani side. And I didn't want to, I didn't want that. But on the other hand, I think my mum and dad also wanted to learn English. So they kind of learned that through me. Hmm. Um, and I think from there, it was more after that college and uni wasn't, there were, I, I don't remember any particular racial incidents. I mean, I've had friends make jokes and use words and I regret laughing at them and joining in with them just because I felt like that's what the right thing was. I wish I stood up for myself a little bit more. Um, but what I was very conscious of was the, the look that people gave you. I don't know if you've experienced that. And looking back at it now, I, I'd say the look was more to do with a couple of things. I think maybe it was actual looks that I got. Like when I went into, some, when I went into a restaurant, when I went into a, a particular public place, I just get stared at. Um, and, and now I kind of think of, well, was I actually getting stared at or was that me just thinking that, you know? And that's, that's the kind of mindset I had all the way, all the way through it. And, and it could have been both, it could have been both, but um, that was down to my own experience. And I think from that, it's brought this drive and motivation for me to get out of that situation. And I've always felt that I've had to work twice as hard as my white counterparts to, to get to where I am today. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I think that's proven it to where I am right now uh, compared to a lot of my friends who are from that Asian background. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm kind of glad that the way I've seen this whole journey was, has always been that I've educated people. So people have got to know me and they've actually realized, you know what, there's not much difference between me and him. He, he actually shares the same values. He's actually proud to be British. And I think then that has a knock-on effect. So when you talk about you educating yourself and, and then speaking up for others. I think that's 
through my example and through my struggles, I feel, I feel that's what's happened from there. Madge, I think a lot of what you said there, certainly my experience of the more extreme things that you went through, it doesn't, it pales in comparison. But the, you know, the looks that you occasionally got, I, I do remember that happening. And I think it's one of those things, again, sometimes you get to, a, well, I, I, get, I guess I got used to it a lot of the time, or it might still be the case that someone looks at me in a particular way, particularly being in Malaysia, but I'm quick to dismiss it now because it, it happens so regularly, but it's not explicit. So it's not, it's not something that stuck with me so much there, but the, um, it definitely listening to those experiences that you've had, they do sort of, they're similar to those that, um, the conversations that my I had with my brothers, that was they were talking about similar things there. But the interesting thing about Luton was that it wasn't so much um, racism from white people in Luton because of the cultural mix. It was very much in their time growing up. It was um, black people and Asian people uh, had that had the issue there, and there were lots of reasons behind that. Um, it's really interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, one, one, you just talked about the black and Asian, like the in, in Sheffield, like the where I'm from is mainly Asian. You've got an area where it's like Somalian and black people kind of live together and Arabs. You've got another area which is purely like Pakistani, you know, like they, everyone kind of sticks to their own. Um, but I have, a, I have a few black, black friends and one thing that makes me comfortable around them and, and when you talk about Asian and black people having a problem, it's like, if, if there is a problem in Sheffield to do with that, that's usually drug related um, or like, yeah, exactly. uh, like uh, what's it called, areas or I, I don't know what the word they use now. But uh, it's basically to do with, you know, that that's what the, the any, if there's any problems, it's usually that. But I've always found that Asian people and black people have, are mingling better together because there's a, there's a similar story, there's a similar struggle. But then what was also interesting is something as observing from the outside is that sometimes it felt like it was cool to be black you know like the, there's a black culture of the way people dress the way people speak you got the music videos you got the footballers who like it's it's it's, it's what do you call it it's, it's overemphasized isn't it and and what i saw was that the asian community then tried to start doing the same thing the way they spoke the way they dress the music um and and i felt that that, that kind of brought people together um, and I always, I always kind of found it difficult because even in the in the school that I'm talking about, um, there were quite a few black people who were racist towards us as well. And I yeah. never, I never understood why that was. Maybe it was, it was their way of like you know, trying to oppress someone else so it didn't come, reflect back on them. But I always thought, well, we we kind of going through the same struggle. And even now, like we'll talk about this more in a bit. Like the Black Lives Matter movement, it's the the Asian community and all the other different communities are kind of being forgotten but that doesn't bother me because the conversation is happening and if it happens for the black community it's only a good thing for our community you know um joe do you want to kind of share if there's been any instance or of your own experience with with towards like racism or yeah i mean i will i will say a few things as well uh, based on on you know some comments about what you guys have said because yeah i just one thing i would I would say, and, and this is, I would say this for, for anybody is like, if you are listening to things like this, 
or any type of podcast, like, you know, more professional or whatever else, or YouTube videos. It's like, just have a paper down with you because I've like filled the whole page of just like notes. And it's, it's like me just compartmentalizing like everything that people are saying. And, you know, a few things that I've highlighted, I mean, like sport is obviously something that you, you know, you've spoken about, Evan. I know Madge as well, you know, sport was a big thing for you in terms of, um like uniting different races and things like that you know you talk about religion I was really interested Evan to hear and we can talk about this another time as well but your view on like you know um your view on your religion and how that kind of helped you and brought you into like a different a different type of community as well and um whether that brought you peace or happiness or whether it just felt like a kind of family irrelevant of like race or whatever but you were just like you know uh as a church you know and I, I think you know from my experience that that's apparent I thought I thought what you both spoke about about environment was also really 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 important I went to uni in Bedford Evan you know I spent I, I've spent time in Luton uh, like one of my best friends she lives in Dunstable teachers at schools in and around Dunstable and Luton and actually she made a comment the other day because because I, I was talking about this episode and 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 she actually said that there isn't that much um, recorded and also what she's witnessed racism in her school and she says it's it's because there are just so many races that you there is just like that thing of like you know so much about each other and maybe what you've said there Madge about you know you but all understand like the struggles that you've had that it just doesn't happen which again is like maybe you've had that experience so maybe your brothers maybe your brothers didn't I think you know I've had a very sheltered upbringing regarding racism and uh and I spoke about this I think in the maybe the first or second episode when I said about where I live is I've lived in predominantly um a very kind of white uh area north uh, like you know where we are in east anglia is not very diverse i mean you know football talking about football justin fashionu was like the biggest thing ever when he came to norwich city um and it wasn't necessarily about his football ability it was the fact he was black um and that was for norwich that was like such a big deal um and it's taken a long time to become more diverse um but I would say from my background I went to a Catholic school and I feel that one thing you talked about Madge was like values and I feel like we learned values within that school so when we did have um people of color when we had you know we've got quite a big Filipino community um in Norwich um linked to the university and then you know I had black friends had Asian friends the values part of it was was kind of what we learned a lot about. And I suppose my experience of racism was was not like live racism. I wasn't seeing it every day or I wasn't involved in it or anything. It was more of like what I saw on um, saw on TV, in movies, or it would have been um, through our like English lessons. So like vividly remember in English lessons learning about Stephen Lawrence you know, and, and reading articles about it and researching it and having that type of thing. So, you know, I think 
the last thing I'd say from my point of view was language has changed a lot because I think that's probably from a school point of view um, what I learned a lot in terms of like different language has changed. So, and this comes down to race, um, sexuality, um, culture, religion, the language that you hear on TV, what you hear as accepted on, you know, in school, on the street, whatever, rightly so, people are getting more aware of like, you can't say this, you can't say that. And I think, Evan, you talked about this is boys probably did it, boys, girls, whoever did it at school just to try be the kind of top dog within their friendship group. Oh, well, you say, it, you say, it, you say, it. no, it's wrong but don't understand really why it's wrong, where it comes from. And that's the lack of education. Um, and they've said it. And like you've said, Madge, people said it to you and you laughed. Well, you know, as soon as you laugh to it, there's a small part of that person that thinks, oh, that, that must be like funny that I, I can say that again. Um, and then he says it to the wrong person or he says it to somebody else who just doesn't agree with it. So that education is is massive to to educate people that know these words can't be said and sometimes people talk about oh you can't say anything anymore but I don't necessarily agree with it because I think we've said too much maybe that's been too hurtful and anything that causes any anybody hurt or distress even if you're just pointing out about you know um you know their physique or or how they look you just shouldn't say it. And that that stems back to the whole idea about values and treat people how you want to be treated. If you don't want somebody to call you a horrible name, then, you know, you shouldn't be doing that yourself, you know. So, you know, I think one thing I'd ask you, Evan, is regarding language and obviously how things have evolved and your exposure to racism, do you think you would have had a different experience in this generation with social media about racism whether your whether your reaction to that phone call would have been different if you were surrounded by uh, the generation that we are now where you could have recorded that phone call you could have um snapchatted it or put it on your instagram story and said i'm going to tag my mates and this is what they said to me and you know how that kind of starts escalating things potentially in the wrong way sometimes but what do you think about that yeah I think it's a good question I guess one of the things I'll go back to before going into that is what you said there about us not being able to say anything anymore and I think when people say that a lot of the time what they're what they're actually saying is that you're not allowed to be ignorant on subjects anymore because when you're, you are allowed to say things, but it's the way that you say things that is important. So you can't flippantly make a joke about the way someone looks or about a situation that's taking place in the world. With, um, just to briefly talk about Black Lives Matter for the minute, they, um, they got in a bit of trouble with something that they tweeted about anti-semitism i think it was to do with it might have been something along the lines of jewish people or um control the 
um, the media or something like that. I don't think it was that explicit, but it was something along those lines. And when I heard it initially, I thought, well, that doesn't seem like they've said much wrong. But it took me two minutes to go on the internet and find out what the actual issue was with it and say, oh, okay, I understand it. I understand why people felt offense to that particular thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what's changed now. There isn't a reason for us to be ignorant on topics anymore. So you can say things, but it's just saying things from a place of education and not just a place of education, like what you guys are doing now, a place of being open to hearing or being non-judgmental in the way you say things. And it's people that tend to be making judgmental statements that then say, oh, you can't say anything anymore. Moving on to the question that you asked there, the, the big word is the N words, right? And without doubt, I think my reaction to that now, it would have to be different. It's used so often in music, in media. I don't think that it could have the same impact on me as it had then. The way that social media works m means that perhaps that isolated incident then might have turned into something a bit more now there would have been ways and means of me dealing with that differently now. I think knowing my character, I don't think I would have done anything with it because even then I could have done. Um, I remember the, the day that that particular phone call happened, I had a lot of family around at that time and I've got, you know, I've got a big family and I've got a lot of big guys in my family as well. And they were there. So I could have said, look, I've just had this phone call. Um, can we go and sort this out? But um, I didn't. And that's just that's my personality. Right. So it would have had an impact. The but I think the way that language is used now has changed so much to the point where intent still matters. Definitely. But for teenagers, I, I don't know how it's pretty difficult for us, isn't it, to put ourselves into the shoes of children now. I know my I've got a nephew who is seven or eight and I was, I was really surprised by how much, how many conversations I have with him where he's talking about conversations that he's having to have in school with people who he, he feels is being racist towards him. And even those are conversations that he's having with teachers as well. And he's saying, Oh, the teacher said this to me. And I'm thinking that doesn't sound right. There's no way that a teacher could say something like that. So it's something that is definitely in terms of how I would react to it now, I, that particular phone call or incident, we've probably got different ways and means of dealing with it because it is something that there is more, we're more aware of. But it's interesting to think, um, if I would have dealt with it differently, I'm not sure, I'm just thinking about my own personality, I probably would have dealt with it in mm -hmm. the same way. Um, so I wanted to ask Evan uh, about your own experience about uh, living and working abroad. You said that you, you, it's your first international experience. You lived here for eight years. Um, I've, I'll share mine in a bit, but in, in just in terms of context in Malaysia, um, you got, you've mentioned this before, you've got the black British, you might have the black Americans, you might have the black Afro-Caribbean, but we also got the black Africans here. So I wonder if, that has had an impact on you because they, they have a stereotype and they have um, a particular thought process, uh, uh, what people think of them. And then obviously 
from the look of you, they might think the same way, but as soon as they hear you, it's, it's completely different. So what's been your experience in terms, have you experienced racism or have you been aware of it on the international scene? Um, I've definitely been benefited from that passport privilege, I think. The, I've been, I've probably been stopped by police driving here more than I had been in England, but again, not that often, maybe three or four times. And I know which is still quite a few times, I guess. But um, in terms of racism, I've not really received any here. Um, the, yeah, I struggle to think of anything. It's very much the case of, I guess, because of the way that I look, sometimes the way that I carry myself, the way that I speak, those are the things that people approach first. So, you know, it's the Malaysian way that people follow you around in shops. At first I thought, is that me that they're following around? But no, that's <laughs> just everyone that they follow around like that. Um, what has been insightful is that because I have that, Brit that British passport, then I do become privy to conversations with Malaysians when they're talking about, say, Nigerians in Malaysia and what their opinion is of what Nigerians are doing in Malaysia. So that's, it's really interesting to see how a passport trumps race in that perspective when you're abroad, because you're able to be privy to a conversation that people wouldn't have with me in England. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you brought some good points there, but especially about passport privilege. That's something that, um, that I kind of, I can hide in the background with that one because I've lived in Malaysia and I've lived in Egypt and both places I've been able to blend in as a local. Um, so I, people will come in and talk to me and, ex, and, and even my name as well um, is a Muslim name. They don't get the concept of a Muslim name can be from a different race. They always think that, oh, it must be Egyptian or it must be Malaysian. They don't, they don't understand that a Muslim name can go into different races. So a lot of the time I, I get treated like a local and then knowing how, like, for example, if I'm with Joe, as a white person, they can see that in, in his, from his skin, he will get treated differently to how I would. Uh, just, just that person does it, just does it without thinking. Um, and until I, until maybe they hear me or maybe until they know that I'm British, I'll get treated in a different way. So that's something that I've kind of like realized. And like you said, that passport privilege is, is massive. I always like hear the Pakistanis in Malaysia they're usually like security guards or they're low level workers uh, doing a lot of labor. Um, so that's what the presumption comes to obviously of me. Um, and when I work in international schools, generally that's what parents think. So in Egypt, they thought I was Egyptian. Here, they probably thought I was, I was a local. And they're like, why are you hiring a local? Because they have a massive problem, especially in the top international schools that basically white teachers or British teachers are the best teachers. And that's what, sells and that's how they can charge the higher money that's that's just the perception from parents and everyone so until they hear me and until they see me teach i'm all right but that first particular the first impression is always that um i think um recruitment for me i, I don't you've not had this experience yet evan because you came from the uk and i think mm -hmm. when you come from the uk it's not a problem. The race thing is not a problem because you're, you're interviewing from the UK. But when you're interviewing from different countries, so when I've interviewed from Malaysia 
or when I interview from Egypt, sorry, not even interview, apply. I've, I've now worked at two different international schools, uh, three different international schools, but from, the, from Malaysia to Egypt and from Egypt to Malaysia, um, I, both instances, I've probably thrown in about 60 to 70 applications and I've probably had about four or five interviews. And that, that, there, there's an article and I'll try finding it and I'll share that if, if I, if I, in, the, in the notes, is that people are aware that my name has to be on the first thing on, on my CV, but I clicked onto that passport privilege and made sure the second line, I wrote down British in capital letters, because even that, the, the numbers don't match, you know, the 60 applications that I'm throwing in and I'm only getting three, four interviews. And I know that once I get an interview, I'm, I'm pretty confident that I'll come across how I want to come across and then that bias will move away. But in this particular article, they, talk, they know that they talk about different categories. It was, it was from a recruitment agency. They talk about category one, which is white, Western. They talk about category two, which is to do with uh, black, black ethnic minorities, but maybe from, from Western backgrounds. And then you have the rest. And I remember they said category three, the, the, the hardest one is a black South African where compared to a white South African can get a better job. And this, this particular woman who wrote this article was saying that um, they had to work on commission. So although she wanted to kind of promote the diversity uh, because she needed to work on commission, she had to throw in mainly uh, category ones because that's what everyone does because they need the commission. But she also consciously tried to put the category twos and category threes. And it's only until the end of the season, the recruitment season, usually that's what's happened both times for me, is when you get a look in. Um, and it's something that I can never prove, but it's something that I know that happens. Um, and that's something that I've experienced uh, on, the, on the international scene. Yeah, I mean, that happens in England as well. They've done studies into that where they've sent off... Um, CVs which are exactly the same only the name has been changed and the name that sounds English always receives more re um, responses than the name that doesn't sound English um, there's been quite a, a few studies into that and I think you know that is something that I am concerned with as well my name clearly doesn't sound English either and there's lots of cultures, there's lots of nationalities in England. So particularly, I know uh, Nigerians quite often will have an English name as well. So, you know, I, I had a friend called Mide and everyone knew him as Mide until the time that we had an award ceremony and Michael was called to the front and I was looking around, who's Michael? <laughs> and he came up. <laughs> so it, it's something that I think is, again, you mentioned things that are similar in our in our communities that's definitely something that we are all conscious of there as well let's talk about the next steps Eben. i think this is quite an important topic uh, just from your own experience um also you talked about are you doing research what would you say i mean it's not necessarily uh, angled towards all white people but anyone who needs to learn about race or feel that they need to take a bigger step towards it what would you what would you recommend i think there's enough literature now that you are you, you should be able to find 
what you're looking for. There's lots of books that have been written. There are lots of discussions that take place online, even within popular culture. I was watching the, I watched the Winter Soldier and the Falcon, Falcon and the Winter Soldier yesterday. I saw the last episode of that. I won't go into any um, spoilers with it, but a lot of what they talk about there was very much something that you could you could take it out of that Disney program and put that into the situation that a lot of um, black and ethnic minority people feel about, say, playing for England. And you can imagine, I can imagine Raheem Sterling and those guys having similar conversations with their families about what it means to play for England and the conflict that that might that that might create inside them. Aside from that, um, steps that people can take. I think. If it's understanding others, I, it has to be researched. Of course, do speak to people that you're comfortable with, but it doesn't, that has to be a natural conversation a lot of the time. I, I think for the most part, people now have spent so much time talking about it, particularly um, if, I, if I talk about black people specifically, it's kind of exhausting looking at what happened with George Floyd and all of the other people that have been um, victims of, say, police brutality or other forms of um, discrimination against black people. These are conversations that, whilst they're public eye and mainstream conversations now, or have been for the last two years, they've been taking place forever, you know, Joe mentioned that he was learning about Stephen Lawrence when he was in school. That's in England. And people are shocked to hear, oh, that happens in England as well. It's continually happened. And, you know, whilst for the, for the mainstream, for the majority of people in public, it only flares up now and again. If you're part of those communities, then these are things that are being relived time and time again. I don't actually spend much time talking to my black friends about racism because it's and you know it's you sort of expect it another thing happens you say okay well what's different this time to the time before almost a lot of the time so i think now it is very much on people to do research for themselves but also if they are in you know if they do have friends if that friend shows that they want to talk about it or they're willing to talk about it or they open up an avenue to talk about it then use those times to do it but i think it's difficult to say you know go and find your black friends or your asian friends and ask them about the racism that they're suffering from so i think when i say do your own research i really hate when people you get a lot of conspiracy theorists that say that and then don't send you anything useful to look at but i think in the age of social media, there's lots of good voices that you can follow. And there's lots of really well put together accounts that you can follow also. So actually places like Instagram are good places to start now because there's lots of really helpful sites. I have begun to follow quite a few to learn about other areas of um, the black diaspora that are of interest to me but also again anti-semitism and things along those lines as well and you know you find one or two good voices on instagram perhaps you've heard someone speak about it on a television program 
or you've read a book by one of them, follow them on Instagram and then off Twitter. And that normally leads to other people and other conversations to related to that topic, which you can then follow. And I think when I say do research, that's a good place to start rather than just say, oh, you do research and get on. Yeah, I think I think for me, my big take home from this was was your quote um, Evan earlier that said there's no reason to be ignorant. Like there literally isn't. a re- And this is for everything. You know, we can talk about culture and sexuality and race, but like specifically today, there is no reason to be ignorant about race. And um, something me and Madge um, shared was, uh, I'm going to, I might mess up his last name, Madge, but Emmanuel Echo, who does the uncomfortable conversations with a black man. Like he, the way it's just all produced and the, you know, the way he kind of breaks it down and uses like amazing examples and it's all relative and, and you can relate to it based on sport. It's just really good. So like you said, Evan, find somebody that you like, but I mean, for me as well, it's like, there's, there's so many other benefits. You can't just go out there, like you said, and, and find somebody and go, Oh, you know, you're black. Can I ask you this? I, I feel like I only asked Madge that question. That was after what, like two, two years of knowing you and, and maybe a few months of them working with you closely that like I would feel comfortable then saying, would you mind talking about this and asking? And I think that you have to do first as well is have those relationships with people. If you haven't got any friends that are different, you know, different race, different culture, I mean, you're missing out on a lot more than just uh, just having those conversations anyway. But um, yeah, I think I think that for me is no reason to be ignorant and and just research conversations, everything else. That that guy you're talking about, I was actually going to re- reference him as well. I'm going to pronounce it e- Emmanuel Acho just to cover both bases. Um, but <laughs> he uh, that was that we remember I got you around to my house and we put that it was on Apple TV when it with Oprah and he yeah. he. he he basically got loads of different white people who have experienced or feel that they're racist or had racist issues. And he explained it with such like great English, didn't he? Like, and, and examples. And he, within a few minutes, he just killed the argument. And um, why, why, why I did that with Joe, even sometimes now what you talk about Instagram and you talk about social media, but is that whenever I see something, I'll always forward it to Joe, not because he's a white person, because he's interested. He's interested in learning about different perspectives and, and, and then trying to understand. I don't target him because he's a white person. I know he's not racist. It, it doesn't benefit him in that way. But by him doing that, he can then, when he has those conversations with other people, he can then reference that. Um, and, and something that I was quite surprised with, this, this guy, Manuel Acho, he, he brought a book out called Uncomfortable Conversation with a Black Man. And I wasn't going to buy it at first because I thought, why do I need to buy it? I mean, I've experienced racism myself. I know loads of black people. I, I've had conversations with them. I don't need to buy it. And to be honest, when I when I read the book, I would probably say 75% of that book I already knew, I already could relate to, I've experienced it myself. But there were other things in there that I didn't even think about. So, for example, um, using the word N-word, the N-word, how the E-R at the end and the A at the end makes a difference and how the black community use it and how they empowered that word from uh, using it in, in, a, in a slave term into something that they use amongst each other. I never even knew that. Uh, there was something about uh, talking about 
the redlining area in America where they talk about how they put black communities together and it's very similar in the UK and how he made the point that when he pulled out these stats, it's got nothing to do with race, it's got to do with poverty. So if you put white people in that same area and they suffer the same poverty, you'd have the same results with the white community, but everyone just jumps on the wagon. Um, I, I also didn't think about, there's that, there's like my racism is to do with what's happened in the UK really. And then now obviously 9-11, but the, with the black person, it's very much related to the slave, the slave trade. And there's a lot of hurt from generations and generations. And so that is what, what's the difference between me as from a British Asian community guy to uh, a British black person. And then also how he talked about just having the white privilege. You can be an Asian or a black middle-class person and there's comparing yourself someone to a white, low-class, working-class, wherever, but they still have their whiteness and that whiteness gives them a head start. And we've talked about this in our conversation without really bringing it up is that white privilege or the British privilege, that first impression really makes a difference. Um, so I, I, I learned that from that book. So I'd recommend that book. Um, and even me as a person who has experienced racism myself, and I said, got loads of black friends, uh, I learned something from that. And that's something that I've educated myself on. Um, even something like this, like the podcast, if you're listening to it, share it with people. It, even it doesn't matter the person you share it with, doesn't have to be a racist, you know, it's not about that. It's about, it's about broadening their horizon, broadening their perspective. And if they do get into uh, an opportunity where this conversation does come up, well, they're then educated because they've had three different perspectives, three different backgrounds. That's the whole point of this podcast. And then lastly, I would say, um, when I hopefully, at some point, people listening to this or even us will be in an influ influential position where we can enforce change. So just remember that, that when, for example, I become a head teacher or I become a, 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 a higher up in management in school, I am aware, aware of all of this and then I can influence change and make changes. I remember when I finished my PGCE as a trainee teacher and a, a few teachers used to say to me, or even some of my like uncles and that, they used to say, you know what, now is you're going you're gonna to get a preference in interviews because there's hardly any Asian teachers and especially PE teachers. I didn't, I didn't come across one and, and they are dying for diversity, especially amongst teachers in schools. Um, and I never felt comfortable with that. I was like, I don't want, I don't want to get a job because I'm brown or I'm Asian. I want, I want because I'm, I'm the best teacher there. And I, it didn't sit with me well. But recently, because of the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of the stories that they that they come up uh, that sorry came across, I I, um, I could relate to. Now I actually see by putting someone in there, and if that is a strategic move that you make, how that is going to affect the next generations to come. So I think even like that, when we do get into that influential position where we can make change, it doesn't have to be us as black or brown people. It could be you as a white person that you that are then able to, to do something about it. And I hope this podcast um, has, has done that and given you different perspectives. Yeah, I think um, the good thing about the, the good thing about racism is that it's a pretty easy topic to begin with. Clearly, um, you know, we've seen it with the footballers a couple of weeks ago that racism is bad. There's not, it's not one of those complicated subjects or it shouldn't be one of those complicated subjects at the very base level. But beyond that, I think the one thing that is worth taking away 
I think is the idea that there's that individual sort of racism that people receive on a day-to-day basis, which is bad and wrong, but it can be, things can be easily eradicated with that. One of the more important things that we need to look at doing in the future is looking at the sort of structural racial issues that cause problems, like you mentioned with redlining and crimes of poverty and things along those lines. Those are the bigger issues that create the stereotypes around different groups that cause people to then receive individual racism. So we can, I think we can stop individual racism pretty easily by saying, well, don't be racist. But then in order for us to eradicate racism, then it's really important that we do look at how we can use the data that is available to us to say, okay, well, how do we make it a fair and more equal society? And another time we talk about BLM and how like, what they are supposed to be doing actually does fit into that as well, I guess. Right, uh, let's finish there. It's been another long podcast but i think like we mentioned before when we talk about these topics it's important that we cover most of the main points we could have gone in many many directions there but i hope we've kind of like i said got offered different perspectives from different people with different backgrounds hopefully you've learned something from this episode itself and hopefully you'll share it with others eben really appreciate you coming on to the podcast um and this episode your your um your experience and your perspective has been invaluable. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. I think the um, the title of the podcast was apt for me today. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's always after yeah, Joe. Yeah, it's always after Joe. Every, everyone keeps telling me like how, how they just get lost with what Joe says. He just talks a lot of nonsense. But I think I think by you and me taking over the episode today, we've we've uh, uh, we've got through quite a bit. Hey, Joe. I don't know how I get branded with this. <laughs> 